0: Paul M., and Nick W. Alex Molyneux is our guest today. Alex is strategic advisor to Stone aklaners Uranium Fund. The Singapore-based wealth management group utilizes a number of investment strategies. You can learn more about the company via their website, hstone-aklaner.com. Alex is also involved with a number of listed natural resource companies. Alex, welcome back and uh, how are things in Taipei?
1: Thanks, Andrew. Oh, well they they they're good and uh, you know, coronavirus free and a, a sort of a charging a charging economy here.
0: Tell us about that for just a moment. We were just talking offline here, Alex, but talk about the uh COVID in uh, Taiwan because it, it seems to be that they did an exceptional job and unique job of handling things.
1: Well Taiwan's a very unique place. It's it's not a uh member of the United Nations. It's uh it's the place uh known as the Republic of China and it's the losing side of the Chinese Civil War in 1949. So um it's uh you know as you know c- countries like America recognize mainland China now as as the government of China but uh, you know Ta- Taiwan has retained its independence the whole time and um you know it, it's it's a place that that has as a as as a liberal western democracy it has some tensions with mainland china particularly in the last few years those tensions are building up and uh you know i, I they watch china very closely and back in december um they were already talking here in taiwan about uh, a high unusually high instance of pneumonia in uh in wuhan and they started for example to take the temperature of uh people arriving on flights from wuhan and um it was uh one of the first countries in the world to restrict uh, uh entry of people from china initially and then and then um you know that they, they ended up with quite quite a broad set of restrictions on on entry into the country and as a result of basically those restrictions and also a heavy testing regime on any arrivals to taiwan uh they've they've effectively been able to remain free of any community outbreaks so there's been there's been roughly 500 uh cases of coronavirus uh, the vast majority of those are people arriving in taiwan and it's a place uh, where the population is 25 million so so they're doing very well and um you know they they they're reaping the benefits of it the economic uh, the economy is predicted to grow 1.8% this year uh the currency is at a 10 year high um so you know uh they have been affected in a in a trade sense but um It's a very bizarre place to be right now because everyone I talk to or, or, you know, globally um, has got uh, restrictions going on and we we really don't have any restrictions domestically here other than those travel restrictions. Interesting little place.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, very unique. You know, good on you for hanging out there and uh, being able to continue to conduct business with very little interruption. Yeah. Well, talk broad markets, Alex. What do you see? I know you follow the markets pretty heavily. And what are your thoughts on the dollar here, stimulus? Uh, what's your thoughts on commodities?
1: Well, I'm very, very much a, a, a dollar bear. I look very closely at, at you know, uh, the the stimulus actions, the, the, the debt being taken on by governments, uh, money supply. You know, I, I, if, if you look at the growth in money supply, over the last uh, 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 twelve months or so, say in in the United States, then in my view, uh, the dollar can drop another thirty percent or so, uh, just just to make up for that. I, I I think there's some there's some issues which are are actually slowing the dollar's drop. I think um, you know a, a general lack of uh investment opportunities globally because of the pandemic uh you know some extreme weakness in europe is actually slowing the drop in the dollar but uh it it is moving in a negative trajectory and 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 it'll get there in the end the other thing that might be slowing it down a little bit is when you look at money supply you have to look at you know money supply in the long term is actually a very good guide to, to 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 the weakness in fiat currency Uh, but um, the one thing that that you have to look at it together with in the case when you're looking at short-term periods is also the velocity of money ie the speed at which money turns over because because that has um, if the velocity of money slows down then it can slow the impact of a growing money supply and i think that's a little bit what's happening here as well in that the Money supply has been growing at a rate that we've we've not seen before in our lifetimes, um, but at the at the same time, uh, the velocity has reduced somewhat because of uh, restrictions of, of people's movements and uh, you know there's certain activities that people aren't doing and spending money on, and people are hoarding cash because uh, they're worried about job security and things like that. So I think. Um, What's happening is the money's being printed now, and the dollar's already responded somewhat. But what's going to happen is eventually we're going to get to the other end of this crisis. And we all know that in the current environment, it's going to be very difficult to pull that money supply back. And then as the ve- velocity of money starts to normalize, I think it'll show up in inflation at that time. So, ve- very much a dollar, a dollar bear
0: speak to that just a little bit more alex what do you think needs to happen actually to see it start that trend lower it already has to some degree we've seen a pop but what do you see is really that that final catalyst is it getting beyond the current economic conditions uh, where things start to normalize again and with that you know we've seen that commodities at times can be inverse dollar vehicles what do you see really as breaking point do you see further stimulus and normalization of economic activity start seeing that decline in the dollar. What do you think needs to happen to see it go lower? And do you see it happening over the next couple of years?
1: Yeah, look, look I think it just continues to go lower as it has for most of this year. You know, my target for the do- for, for the dollar in gold terms is about uh, two thousand four hundred, two thousand five hundred. That is that that is if nothing else happens in terms of extra stimulus, but. I do think there's going to be another round of stimulus coming. Uh, I'm, I'm not a V-shaped recovery uh, person. That ne- ne- never have been. Um, when 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 you think about the cycle of retrenchment that's been kicked off here, and even if even if that cycle is really dominant in certain industries to start with, like airlines, cruise, other kinds of tourism industries, and whatnot um uh energy for example uh, the the oil and gas industry that this cycle has got a lot uh, um uh, a lot further to play out and these government stimuluses particularly when there's a pandemic going on and when there's effectively a withdrawal of the benefits of global trade these stimuluses extremely um unproductive, if you like. Uh, I I guess what I'm saying is in an economic sense, you know, every dollar you put into the economy has, it creates less productivity. And so, you know, uh, this we're at the point now where there's so much debt in the system, there's been so much stimulus for various things because this crisis only just coming off in a relatively short time off the back of the global financial crisis. And the, 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 the government was never able um you know in, in the u s for example, only ten percent of uh the, the the increase in the fed reserve's balance sheet was pulled back from uh, only ten percent of the increase after the global financial crisis was pulled back right so so we never we never got that back and suddenly there's another crisis and so the stimulus on top of stimulus becomes less and less effective. It's harder to make it go to the place where there's going to be a productive use of that money in an investment sense in the economy or in a consumer making a rational uh, decision sense. And so we're definitely going to see, in my view, an economy really struggling to come out of the pandemic. And I think we can already see that where we see some good statistics in certain months but for example you know the bounce back in consumer activities okay well you know um august consumer activity very good but when you think about um you know one good month does not make a trend particularly when that month includes a, a lot of pent up uh demand from the decline you know from four months of continuous decline so i think that was we get to the uh, later part of the year here, we're going to see uh, these statistics plateau. And um, uh, a great, uh, you know, one of these statistics plateauing is the um, is the employment numbers, the, the the new the new claim, the weekly new claim filings in in the U.S. You know, that's that's come up come off its peak, and it's around eight hundred eight hundred fifty thousand a week, but You know, this is a number that if it's to show economic health needs to be, you know, down in the 200,000 type range uh, at a maximum and it's just sort of running out of puff around the mid 800,000s and and that is an economy that's going to uh, be very difficult to grow and it's probably going to, stay in recession or returning to recession. And so there's definitely more stimulus coming. And then and then when we see more money being printed, we, we then update, uh, obviously, how we feel about gold. But for now, I think it's at least go to 2,500, 2, 2, 2,500. Uh, we'll see what what the size of the next stimulus is. I, I'd be shocked if we get away with another 2 trillion because of everybody arguing over the stimulus now. It's already... It's already too late to be as productive as two trillion would have been if it was if it arrived six weeks ago. So, you know, are we going to get uh, four trillion, five trillion? Uh, these numbers are astounding. And once you get a normalised velocity of money, uh, you know, the gold price, uh, you know, write your own ticket. It depend. It really depends on 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 the uh, the final outcome. Uh, now, uh, for, for for sort of the stimulus uh, programs until we get to the point where 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 the economy stops going down. Uh, by the way, I think it probably goes sideways for a long time after it stops going down because of that lack of productivity that I was talking about. But um, I, I do believe that the whole commodity complex should uh, um, correlate uh, or, or, or should be a positive place to be. If you believe fiat currencies are going to be declining, uh, the the outcome of all the stimulus will eventually be inflation. Um, much of the stimulus, if it's actually to really create jobs, will have to be invested in infrastructure, and those dynamics are very good not uh, for for base metals. Uh, there's some other secular trends going on like the electrification of the world and automotive that is very very healthy for base metals copper nickel uh, these sort of things so i think um the commodity complex is definitely the place to be there's a couple of commodities i probably uh, wouldn't want to be in right now uh you know um e- even though i think there's more stimulus coming in and more infrastructure spending coming i, I-, I think that Iron ore has had some supply constraints that are being released at the moment, so probably wouldn't be in iron ore. But in general, you know, the commodity complex is a great place to be, precious metals and base metals, for the next few years.
0: Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it's tough when you're throwing free money out. It's hard to get productivity coming back from that. So the utility is not there so much, especially when it's mostly consumer based stuff. And as you know, we can't sit here and consume all day and never produce anything. I think that's pretty basic. And it seems like some folks have forgotten about that. You know, one of the things with gold, with your price on gold, Alex, and I see that as very conservative, by the way, you know, I don't think we've seen any time in the past in history where gold has not at least doubled from its high. So if we go back to 2011 and we see gold at, you know, call it $1,900 an ounce back then, I think we're in for a nice move over in the next few years. And I fully expect that that doubling from the high will occur again. Um, so that yeah. puts, you know, gold just under 4000 That's certainly a possible outcome here. But talk about for just a moment, you know, the U.S. dollar is still the prettiest girl in the room. Yeah. What's your thoughts on that as as people continue to still look to the dollar as the best currency, even though it's got a lot of egg on its face. How do you look at that? And how do you compare that to, you know, the commodity complex moving higher and things like the Canadian dollar and the Australian dollar? What's your thoughts on the outcome there? I
1: I do think that, you know, because because just the other day someone was asking me, uh, you know, what currency do I recommend uh, they invest in? should they buy yen or euro or swiss franc and my view with the fiat currencies right now is it's a little bit of a race to the bottom you've got this um sort of uh coincident global uh uh sort of uh, uh lack, you know reduction in 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 economic activity going on so no one can afford their currency if you like uh to be the reason why they slow down even faster so um can the eurozone afford a very high euro versus the us dollar um it can't really so 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 so, so i think with fiat currencies you know everybody's it's like a competition to lower interest rates and print more um, and, 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 and it's almost impossible to know you know, the frequency within which governments will take these actions and, and, and to what extent, how, how far they'll be willing to uh, sort of um, pull levers for their short-term benefit and governments do this because because it it you know it it, it gets them through the next election you know the, the commodity currencies because they are currencies that get exchanged you know that there's a high because commodity production is up is a higher proportion of those countries output those currencies will probably do okay in a relative sense so you know the australian dollar the canadian dollar will probably do better than um the, will probably appreciate in us dollar terms if copper and gold uh, appreciate but i still believe that uh that in general commodities will appreciate faster than most fiat currencies will and the other thing that will happen is is you know, your Canadian dollar or your Australian dollar, you know, if it starts to appreciate too much, as I said, these governments will take actions to, um, to, 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 to try to reverse that trend because whilst in a country like, uh, in countries like Australia and Canada, you know, their income from commodities or uh, will probably be increasing in this environment the rest of their economy is still going to be uh you know in 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 in, in pretty difficult shape and so and and you know the 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 commodity sector uh w- w- particularly when you look at min- minerals uh, isn't a large employer for example, and even in countries where it's a relatively large contributor it's still not a large segment so you know uh, in countries like South Africa and uh, and Canada and Australia, the you know the the, the mining oil ga- oil and gas industry is 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 you know uh, uh, ten to fifteen percent of uh, of GDP. So it's not um, you know so, so so that these countries can't afford to let their currencies loose, if you like. Um, they need to, to to try to cap appreciation versus other
0: currencies. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think if folks have exposure to the commodities complex, um, you know, most of that being sold in US dollars, I think that's really the best place to be and really the the currency differences with those uh, particular ones we mentioned are probably just a rounding error and that people should really pay attention to having exposure to the commodities themselves. Alex, how about, uh, let's move on here, let's get into, I want to talk about Uranium here in a moment, but yeah. can you just overview briefly each company that you're involved with, um, and then let's get on to Uranium.
1: Yeah, so, so I'm involved in, in a, a couple of uh, companies, and I have a couple of roles in the industry, mainly because uh, I've been in the industry for more than 20 years, and... Uh the first half of my, my career in the industry was as a specialist metals and mining investment banker. So, you know, I, I I uh in that in that early part of my career I had a lot of experience with different commodity exposures and and businesses in different stages of development within the industry. And um, you know, my my experience was obviously as, as a banker was very focused on financing and, and helping companies grow and develop. So, I find that um, I tend to get involved in in companies in different in, in different segments that that are in the growth and development phase. I, I don't do things that conflict, right? So you, you won't see me on the board of two royalty companies or uh, things like that. So, um, but you know, uh, commodities in general is somewhere where it's an industry where portfolio exposure makes more sense than a lot of other industries because uh, industries within them commodities can be can be exposed to external shocks and things like that. So you don't necessarily want to focus your whole life on uh, commodity A uh, and find that that that. You know you, you make a lot of progress but you know something comes out of left field to uh to hurt that commodity market fukushima by the way and uranium is 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 such an example right um so so a bit of a bit of portfolio theory is is useful i'm on the board of uh metalla royalty and streaming which is one of my all-time favorite companies it's a gold and silver royalty company it's um listed on the toronto venture exchange and also on the new york stock exchange under the ticker mta uh has uh basically it's it's been around a 10 bagger in 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 the last two and a half years and there's there's a great guy running the company a guy called uh brett heath who's um who invited me to join the board uh just just after the company was first listed and and you know Brett knows every gold property and prospective gold property out there and it's really through the knowledge in in his mind that he's been able to identify individual royalties and portfolios of royalties that 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 metalla can buy relatively cheaply and you know, in, in, in the last 12 months, for example, Metalla has done 19 royalty acquisitions, which is, you know, most royalty companies might do one, one, two, three, or four in in a year. And um, these acquisitions have generally been, you know, very well regarded by the market and analysts and have really been additive to the company. And Brett continues to go. And this company is has Got to a 400 million Canadian market cap, uh, and is really now getting to that point where uh, the next scale of growth is economy of scale. Um, you know, it can, it can take on a, a, a little bit of debt leverage, it's a very, very attractive vehicle for uh, larger counterparties to sell packages of, of, of royalties to. So, I, I think that's a great exposure. For precious metals, people that want to get their their gold and silver exposure, because um, this company uh, it's 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 got more than fifty royalties now, so it's got uh, within it. It has a it's like it's like you, you can own one share and you've already got the risk mitigation of portfolios, but it, it also has the same benefits as a mining company when the commodity price is going up. In that in the, its production grows, if you like, because people start to develop some of the undeveloped properties we have royalties over or, or some of the production royalties we have, people start to expand those mines and whatnot. So uh, that that's a great company. Um, there's a company listed on the ASX where I'm currently managing director. It's called uh, Galena Mines. Uh, Galena, listed on the ASX, has a... Its ticker is G1A. Um, it's it's a company that that's done has been it's been very fortuitous as well. Uh, it, it it listed in September of 2017, um, and in that three in the last in that three year period since listing, it's gone from. Uh, around a 10 million market cap Australian dollars to about 115 million Australian dollars. And it's gone all the way from declaring a maiden resource based on initial drilling results to doing its feasibility study to having Japan's number one lead and zinc smelter come and take a minority joint venture stake in the project um it's sold its offtake to tier one counterparties it's fully permitted and uh just in at the very end of august uh at galena we announced a us 110 million dollar project financing debt facility which is the debt uh so that, uh, the, the debt required to build galena's flagship asset which is the abramine the Abra mine is a poly metallic deposit uh, but at the at, at the top of the ore body you have lead and silver and at the bottom of the ore body you have copper and gold so the feasibility study is based on the lead and silver production uh, and it's a uh, lead at the moment is uh, is in short supply you know it's a base metal uh, and uh, and it's it's a uh, the The concentrate that abra produces will be the highest grade concentrate available globally and 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 the lead industry, like any other uh industry in terms of processing is becoming very focused on environmental issues and the cost of processing so clean concentrates get a premium in the market it's a it's it's a great it's another great project to be involved in so you know, I, I, I highlight those two. That there, there's other boards I'm involved in, but but I know we don't have uh, we don't have all day here, so I'll just I'll just highlight those two. And then, of course, as you said at the start, the eight stone Oklahana advisory role, which I think uh, you'll ask me about uh, uranium.
0: Good performance coming out of uh, Metalla. A lot of competition in that space now. Of course, we monitor and watch. We have a few positions. Mattel is not one of those that we didn't get on board with back in the day. However, we should continue to watch it, you know, with uh, Sandstorm out there and Mavericks, Metalla, Nomad, you've got Vox, yeah. got Triple Flag potentially coming in at an IPO at some point. You've got obviously your majors, which I don't need to mention. So quite a highly competitive space, but good setup there and, and good things going. And certainly it's a uh, royalty companies that certainly has a space in our portfolio. Um, how'd you do for cost of capital, Alex? How did that go? Because you and I haven't spoken about uh, progress yeah. at uh, Galena since uh, I want to say it was boy, when did we talk? 2019, sometime. How would you guys do on cost of capital on the finance package?
1: You know, it's all re- relative. This is the year of Corona, so we we were uh, very very close to closing a bank financing on that project in March when sort of the you know the VIX index went through the roof. Uh, the banks basically froze up at that point. So, so you know, we, we really had a choice then to to kind of ice the project until we felt like the banks are coming back. By the way, the banks, the banks in a place like Australia too, are not like that. They are slowly coming back, but they're you know they're still extremely nervous, um, and they're. You know, uh, interest benchmark interest, interest rates have come down, but the banks have increased their margins on lending as well. Uh, the, by the way, this this goes exactly to that point that we said about the productivity of stimulus money, because you know you put this money in the economy, and the banks just sit there and uh, you, and you lower interest rates, and the banks sit there and increase the margins, so they don't they don't make debt more available. Um. So, but so so what we did is, uh, we quickly pivoted to a non bank. Process and the winner of the non-bank process was Taurus Funds Management. It's a Australian-based um, group who's who, who runs debt funds. Uh, incidentally, uh, mo- most of the money comes from uh, U.S. endowment funds, uh, 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 you know, U.S. pension funds as well. Uh, it's, it's it's obviously an investment strategy for them to get. A bit more yield so Taurus manages the fund and identifies the investment opportunities the structures and whatnot. Now the cost of capital for us the the, the coupon on the Taurus debt is eight percent uh the whole the whole package uh that we're getting from Taurus is is around three percent more than the all-in cost of funding from uh, banks, but 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 let me also say, uh, you know, the 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 structure of the tourist facility is a bit more flexible than a typical bank facility. So, uh, you know, you, you 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 pay a little bit more, but that extra flexibility um actually provides us with uh, a, a a more conservative uh, situation in 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 that the um. The you know the, the the scenarios under which you might breach covenants and things like that. There's a little more flexibility around that. So you know you pay a little bit more, but 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 you you you, you get a better facility. So um, we're we're very happy with it. We, we as I said, we announced at the end of August that we're just going through the uh, sort of final documentation on that, and, uh, and and we're hoping to sign that facility agreement in the near future.
0: Yeah, that's not so bad in the current conditions. You know, that's not bad at all. I mean, quite honestly, that's maybe only a point, point and a half of off of what it should be in normal conditions. So I think that's pretty good. Let's move on and good job with the progress. That company's performed really well and glad you guys are keeping on track and things are moving along in a good, suitable fashion. So as the audience probably knows, you're an advisor to the Eight stone uh Uranium Fund. Maybe just overview that fund uh, how the performance has been and what the strategy is at that fund, Alex.
1: So that fund started in uh, at the very we we we, we launched that fund uh, towards the end of 2018. Um, uh, Oclana, I knew uh, when I was in my previous job as CEO of Paladin Energy, which uh, which at the time uh, I was running it was. One of the largest independent uranium producers in the world, and as you know, it's still a significant. Uh, what what one of my jobs was to put those mines on care and maintenance, uh, because of the low uranium price environment. So it's it's not a, not a major producer today, but it's it's got one of the highest quality asset suites globally, and so, uh, uh, um approached me at the end of that and said, uh, you know. Uh, that what they do is 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 Aucklander has family office clients and uh, and you know ultra high net worth clients and whatnot and and so what they try to do is come up with innovative investment strategies that those uh, that those clients should be looking at and and when 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 the strategies are are hard to execute publicly they create their own vehicles so they sort of came to me and said listen we think. Uh, you know uh, that, that uranium could be a uh, an interesting trade in the next few years, and we, we we don't like the uranium at the time. the The URA ETF had um, a lot of non uranium exposure in it. You know there weren't uh, other significant investment funds that were structured in a way that that appealed to their clients. So so we we set up a fund that. Uh, it has one mandate only uh to buy uranium uh exposure its investment structure is through equities uh it doesn't have any leverage in it uh it you know so so we we, we can either be in cash or uranium equities basically and uh uh so so there's no way no, nowhere to hide for us uh uh in, in, in a way and um you know, we just try to manage the fund to uh, ultimately capture the incredible beta that will come in the uranium equities to the uranium price when, when that when that market moves. So uh, over the next few years, now the the fund performance uh, it's it's in the mid nineties uh, in terms of let's say if you said percentage of its inception value, so we uh, we 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 started investing at the end of october two thousand eighteen uh and you know we were doing very well for a while and then and then if you remember you know the sort of the the, the market fell in a bit of a heap uh in around about July of last year i think when section two three two disappointed uh and and we had a bit of negative performance then but we've almost made All of that back, Um, we're we're outperforming the uranium peers that publicly state their performance as well, Um, and we're outperforming the ETFs. So, so we, we 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 think we think we're going going very very well. You know, we're very well set up here for what's coming next.
0: Just talk briefly about just what your guys' kind of high-level strategy is, Alex, as far as, you know, you guys are uh, – are you in just the majors? Are you – have you spread out across the industry? Are you in the physical funds? Maybe just talk briefly about that.
1: Okay, yes. Yeah. So, so we're, we're in a bit of everything. Uh, so so, so we, we, we typically hold anywhere between, you know, 10, maybe up to 15, 16 different exposures at any time. And the way we look at the fund is, is we really look at two majors, uh and Prom and Cameco, uh, a and we really kind of um, analyze those uh, uh, against each other, if you like. Then we have obviously the the physical exposure uh, being Yellowcake PLC and UPC, uh, and then we have the the developers and and, and the junior exposure. So what we do is we try to, um, you know, we, 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 we move our allocations between these three groups based on a number of things. If, if we feel uh, a little bit bearish to the dynamic of uh, either, either uranium equities or, or the underlying uranium price, we will try to allocate more during that period to the majors and to the physical funds. When we start to feel like uh where you know we should we should be a bit more bullish, we move allocation into the the junior end of the sector uh where we we believe the uh sort of the, the equity performance will be greater so so we sort of we move up and down this risk chain within the industry because as I said we can only invest in uranium or cash. And our investors own the fund because they want uranium exposure. So, they, so, that, so, so we don't tend to carry a very high cash balance. But we can't decide, oh, uranium is so no good right now. Let's buy some gold. So we, we have to manage this within, within the uranium industry. And so um, we spent a lot of time analyzing the Cameco versus KazAtomprom relationship specifically we we spend uh a, a lot of time looking at uh the the sort of the the actions of the physical funds and whether or not they're trading at a discount to their to their nav and then of course with our portfolio structure you'll you'll always end up with with sort of a minimum of six or seven maybe up to ten different pre development or, or or companies with their assets on care and maintenance in the portfolio so uh, it requires quite a bit of active attention.
0: What about the, uh, so like, let's, let's use 2020 as an example, Alex, maybe you guys can, or maybe you can share a little bit here. You know, we had the March uh, COVID lows, uh, your, all uranium stocks sold off at that time. Did you guys actively purchase more at that point? Uh, how did you manage the the March and, and I guess into April sell-off? And then from there, when we saw uranium, the underlying price of uranium, go up to, I don't know what it was, 34 a pound, did you guys change focus a little bit and move more into Kazata Prom and the physical funds at that time, eliminating exposure from the uh, the more volatile part of the sector? Um, and of course, now we're back at $30 or whatever it is today. You know, talk about a little bit of that trading component that you you mentioned and how you guys handled 2020 as an example.
1: Yeah, so I think I think we handled twenty twenty pretty well, actually. Um, so uh, 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 as I said, you know, we're we're uh, we, we, we're up. We must be up around as at today. It must be about twelve percent or something for the year. Maybe it's a little bit more. Which which for you know for for a large diversified fund with uranium exposures, do very well. I think. So uh, and as I said, it, it it's it's doing better than the peers that that publish their performance. So coming into the year, you know, we picked up quite a bit of performance as, as as uranium really started the year as a bit of a theme, and we were relatively long juniors. Um, you know, we got we got hit around a bit in that COVID trade, but as you said, uh, you know, but uranium uh, sort of bounced back relatively well in the aftermath, and 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 our names did quite well. Um, what happened as we came into the, towards the end of spring, we started to become very nervous because we could see uh, that the market was not functioning properly. This is this is when, you know, I, I think when we saw Cameco's results for Q1 and we saw that Cameco, uh was roughly, might have been around forty percent of all spot market purchases, and we started to see things that I've never seen happen in uranium before. I've I've uh you know work, been been working in in uranium for uh, specifically in uranium for um a, around eleven years, and you know in my job at Paladin, I, I obviously managed a business that was selling physical uranium globally and delivery into contracts. And I understand very well, the dynamics of the different converters. And we saw this very unusual thing happen, uh, where, 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 where where let's say two, two key things showed me that the, there was something ill happening in the market. Number one was the spread between converters. For uranium spot delivery at Cameco ended up having a $4 premium to non Cameco converters and by the way historically Cameco always had a 25 50 cent discount and that's because there's some uh, there's a little bit of uh, uh, there's taxes you pay and you eventually get them back you know most of the traders prefer to prefer not to deliver into um into Cameco's converter so so that that was very unusual to me and then the second thing is is the uranium Forward curve went into backwardation and uranium forward curve is a little bit like gold. It's almost always permanently in contango. And that really told me that the only thing moving spot up or keeping it up at the time was Cameco's buying and specifically Cameco's front month buying. So uh, we, you know, when we saw that happen, we, we, we moved into the bigger names uh, and, 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 and we moved more into KazAtomProm and the physical uranium funds because we knew that um, the real price of uranium wasn't 34, that it was about 30. That, that, that was really what, what we felt the, the excluding Cameco transactional value of uranium was about 30. Um, we're trying to have a look at, you know, we're looking at transactions that were happening further down the forward curve and and things like that. And so we, we kind of felt like, well, let's just, our concern was is that is that the price might go below 30, uh, the real price might go below 30. So we sort of, um, we de-risked the portfolio quite significantly, but as the summer progressed and uh, we were at, um you know a couple of months ago was it quite clear that Cameco's buying was coming off and the market was normalizing and i feel really good about the market right now uh because ca- the market is in now in a position where it looks like it's functioning and operating correctly But the spot price has not dropped substantially below $30 a pound, which when you consider everything else going on and coronavirus impacting uh, utility buy or whatnot, I I think that's a pretty robust place to be. And so uh, in September, we've uh, allocated more aggressively in the portfolio. Um, Yeah. So, 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 we're a bit more in the juniors now uh, uh, than we were. And I, I, I think that move has helped our portfolio performance a little bit. The uranium equities didn't come off as much as I thought um, when, when the uranium price came off and started to normalize, but uh, they definitely came off a bit. So, uh, we, we, we sort of picked up a little bit of performance there, I think.
0: Going forward, here we've got uh, you know u s elections coming up which can can bring some volatility, maybe not specifically to uranium, but certainly, if there's anything like a, a volatility type action like we saw in March, we could see you know uranium equities get sold along with everything else. Uh, what's your thoughts coming out of the election here? Um, in the U.S. and then, what do you see as you know some forward future catalysts on the uranium side of things, Alex? Uh, what's your feeling on next year if utilities are going to start looking to make some purchases? Um, do you think it's all still kind of up in the air with you know COVID, the elections? You know, when do you see things starting to take that next leg? What's your thoughts going into 2021?
1: So I think the elections, uh, the U.S. elections, are win-win for uranium uh which is not always the case but um both uh yeah, but, but 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 Biden um Biden's platform incorporates nuclear as uh you know as 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 part of his um carbon free power generation and and you know Biden's going to going to sign the uh COP21 Paris agreement and sign the US up to carbon reductions target which which has, uh, which is very positive for nuclear. But uh, you know, Trump, without having as clear a holistic energy or environment policy, has um, you know been a relatively uh, a relative supporter of nuclear power as well. Uh, and you know, there's been a number of initiatives, uh, as you know that that have um, have been very very focused on. Trying to get more of the nuclear supply chain, act you know, uh, trying to reignite the activity in that domestically in the US. So I think both, um, both, uh, 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 both presidential candidates are very positive. So, so that I think we, we we've got an election coming up which is pro pro nuclear. So that's a good thing. Um, I think uh, you know in terms of utilities, utilities uh, definitely i think they they've bought they've been less present in the market this year than they would have otherwise been uh with respect uh, because of COVID. um i i really felt like 2020 late 2020 or second half of 2020 would be a big time now i i, I gotta tell you that you know in, in my time in the iranian business the the conferences uh are actually very important. There's there's three major conferences a year. One that happens in April and May. Then you have the World Nuclear Symposium that happens in September. And there's another uh, uh, sort of supplier utility conference that, that, that happens in late October or early November, depending on, on the year. And these are, are important because, sometimes utilities will do bilateral deals, uh, sometimes they'll tender materials, sometimes they'll determine to buy in spot and how they enact their purchasing decision is influenced by the intelligence that they gather. And uh, their main forums for meeting with suppliers are these three conferences, which have all been canceled this year. And I, I think that that hasn't, has had an impact uh, on purchasing decisions, I think um, there has been a, a sort of a, a, a lower requirement for nuclear power this year because uh, because power in, in general generation is down globally, but albeit or, or, or for nuclear, nuclear is done is done better than than almost any other source of generation. It's it's probably only going to be off about one and a half two percent. Um, by by the end of the year, but um, you know I, I think some of these factors have pushed utilities into next year, and I just think we probably got. I, I I kind of felt like twenty twenty was going to be a taste uh, of things to come, the first step in the direction of twenty twenty one, which was going to be a big year, and so uh, it feels like coronavirus might have delayed that by six months or or or, or more. Uh, but definitely the utilities are in a precarious position in the short term uh the utilities need to contract uh, to to do a combination of buying uh a contract plus spot getting up towards about 180 million pounds a year so so uh o- o- over the course of the next decade now once they start enacting that activity then the the deficit in uranium supply is really going to show itself in uranium price so i can see 2021's going to be a very interesting year because whether or not coven is still with us in 2021 we're getting you know very very close to precipitous falls in uh in contracting books for us and european utilities
0: Alex, what's your thoughts on some of these other, you know, I guess, side factors? Give me your thoughts. First of all, so you got Cameco coming back in with Cigar Lake. I think you and I both agree that that's a financial decision and it's about their finances at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and also certainly agreed on the 180, 180 million pounds a year that that comes really close to what I expect as well when this starts yeah. kicking off. But I also think that, you know, looking at the U.S. and European utility inventories, while they are historically low, they could stretch it. And I think COVID will stretch that certainly into next year, possibly into the following year. You know, people often talk about Gazeta Prom, you know, still not being very disciplined or they want to get U.S. dollars because of their, you know, the national currency, the 10G. I don't know that the currency portion of that makes as much sense as it used to. But yeah, you know, let's say they seek U.S. dollars and they want to continue to sell uranium. Give me your thoughts on those factors, and then I want to talk about M and A.
1: Okay, so Cameco first. Cameco, I think, uh, as you say, yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, Cameco was burning cash. They got by in the first quarter of this year, uh, you know, by releasing inventory, and it, 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 it sort of that, you know, and there was a few other bits and pieces like a contract settlement that made made the cash balance stay where it was. But in the second quarter, uh, it was pretty obvious to everybody what, what what's going on that, you know, as the uranium price is in increasing, uh, they're buying more and more uh, and they're delivering into a mix of spotted contracts that so they're effectively selling Uh, they're effectively selling for less than they're buying. uh, And, um, you know, it's a short-term game. So uh, this is really why they're they're supposed to start Cigar Lake. Now, a few things on on Cigar Lake. Uh, You're talking to someone that has built mines before, has commissioned them, has actively managed mines before. And it never ceases to amaze me how the investment community or, or, or analysts sort of uh, underplay the the risks to restarting a mining operation and the costs. So, you know, uh, every, when you look at the way, you know, Cameco has previously said, oh, Cigar Lake's gonna restart. Um, we, we think it's happening in September. And when you look at analyst numbers for Cameco, uh, I look at those numbers and I say, well, firstly, Where's the working capital for the restart? I can't see it in your numbers, right? Uh, you, you know, a mine like Cigar Lake could potentially eat, you know, 150 million Canadian dollars in working capital as, as it builds a stockpile of ore, of uranium in solution in the plant, of drummed uranium. Um, and, uh, and, and you know, that that's something I think that people analysing Cameco uh are not very focused on i think the second thing is is scar lake is a very very complex operation uh and one you know one of the more complex mining operations globally and the potential for this to have delays to have ramp up issues um is you know is quite substantial so you know when you when you when you switch on a mine it's it's not like uh it's not like switching on a Coca-Cola bottling factory all the bottles are lined up and they just start you know you 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 start drawing electricity and the, the syrup goes into the bottles it's just it's uh it's a very very different thing and Cameco will have lost experienced workers there'll be um, having to retrain staff, uh, safety issues, if you like, as they come up, can slow or suspend various parts of the operation. They have Indigenous employees who've been recognised in Canada as a group that is susceptible to coronavirus and, and, and needs to be protected. And so, so firstly, I think I think the potential for Cameco to disappoint, you know, and not only do analysts incorporate. That's a Cameco localised disappointment in terms of having those issues show up in Cameco's uh, operating financial numbers, but it's also a disappointment for uranium supply globally because people already put Cigar Lake back in the model and pretty much assume it's going to be running at, at, at full tilt in six months from when it gets switched on, which which in, in, in my view, I'm, I'm not saying it's I'm not saying that's not going to happen because because let me tell you you know Cameco's management are first class uh, in 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 this regard they're, they're technically extremely capable and uh, um, but uh, this is the mining business and uh, things go wrong um, so you know I'm concerned that this is going to be a that there's going to be a the. the there is a probability of a disappointment of a cigar like restart that is not that is not being uh, talked about or it's not being factored into people's considerations for the for the, for the the short term uranium market.
0: Yeah, with their move coming back, they got to experience what it's like to buy a bigger volume in the spot market and and how that impacts their financials. Do you think the move with taking cigar back has to do? with a little bit of their uncertainty, Alex, about how long it's going to take for this market to get to incentive price to where they can sign new contracts to recoup that effort. Do you really see Cigar as really bringing that back as a safety policy and adding a little bit of runway to their finances if they had to continue to stretch this out, say, the next three years?
1: I do. I think that Chemico were probably disappointed in the market impact of their on-market buying. So I think they probably felt like uranium prices would go even higher. And where, you know, in, in, in sort of the 30 to $40 a pound price point, they're in a very difficult position because, you know, frankly, if uranium spot price was back at $18 a pound or $20 a pound, the decision to buy on market is okay for Cameco because they've got legacy contracts in there that, that they can buy at 18 or 20 and, and, and make a profit. Um, at, you know, 50 bucks a pound uranium, if, if they get the price there by buying uh, on market, then no problem because they can start to con you know the contract the long-term contract price will move up and they can start to contract at higher prices and 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 the transition from spot buying to restarting the mining business is a whole lot more certain uh this 30 to 40 dollars is very very uncomfortable because it's a loss making zone for them in the on-market buying yet it's not a high enough price to very clearly justify a strong return on capital for restarting the mine I, I, I think Cameco were uh, really fought I think they had a swing at getting uranium to 50 by themselves but they just weren't enough um, and I think then they had to sort of bite the bitter pill and restart the mining business because uh, they have they have debt coming due to um, if they can make a positive margin in the mining business, no matter how small it is, uh, you know they have an asset that is more is easier to put a, a refinancing story around than a business that has no operating mines and simply uh, buys uranium at a higher price than they sell it for. So. I think, you know, Cameco decided, you know, let's not get the cash balance close to zero here. Let's admit that our on-market strategy didn't get us as far as we wanted. And and there might be things like coronavirus impact on utility buying and things like that, that, that impeded that strategy. Uh, but the simple fact is, is that that was never going to be a long-term strategy if it didn't get uranium price high enough, because next thing you know, you're, you're, you're repaying uh, some of this debt that's coming due. You have no ability to uh, refinance that with additional debt because you've got a negative margin trading business and that's it type thing. So, 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 so I, I think, you know, and I know from someone who's, who's run a, uh uranium producing business, if you if you can make money out of the production, even even if it's a very slim margin, that's a better proposition for financiers than a business that's entirely that has all assets effectively on care and maintenance and uh and is cash flow negative.
0: Yeah, good points. And you know, certainly the bit about the some of the restarts, um there's no doubt that any notable restarts will be 12 to 18 months out. So that adds another dynamic to just the runway that utilities have with their current inventories and the time it takes to get those restart decisions made which won't be made until the incentive price is in place on new projects or I guess brownfield and greenfield development projects. I'm, I'm looking at the list here. It doesn't look good for any notable projects to be built. Um, we're at 2021 here shortly. I don't see any notable project being built until 2024. Yeah, there's some small ISRs and some other things that could come online before that, but I don't see anything notable until 2024. So it really puts an interesting, you know, dynamic on the uh between a rock and a hard place if you will. Talk about for Kazatprom, talk about their desire for dollars and talk about their current situation. What's your thoughts on Kazatprom here?
1: Well, you know, I love Kazatprom. <laughs> And a lot of people are very negative on Kazatprom, and And, you know there's other investors in the uranium industry or funds that have in the past, um, you know, really taken me to task on my uh, on my uh, my support for Kazatprom. But by the way, Kazatprom's been a great investment. I mean, it it, you know it listed uh, around. I think it was eleven dollars was the 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 IPO price a couple of years ago and uh, probably around two years ago that's right around eleven dollars it's paid a uh, dollar eighty and or, or 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 it's probably paid a dollar a dollar sixty in dividends and it's uh, you know a, a fourteen dollar stock that's uh, that's a you know it's it's uh, it's had the best performance in the uranium industry in that period now you know if you want to buy electric car company most people are going to buy tesla right um Prom, yeah sure it might be from kazakhstan but it is the number one benchmark company in the uranium industry Chemico is not Cameco just happens to be sort of quite well known in some circles because it's listed in the us and canada and it's been around for a lot longer but you know Kazatomprom. Is the class act in the industry, and they make cash at current uranium prices, and they make that cash selling at uh, predominantly at spot. So, um, you know, because that's a problem. If you if you want to buy it at fourteen dollars today, they're going to pay you around a five percent dividend yield based on the cash they're making, and if uranium price doubles, the stock will probably double. So, I quite I quite like that. That structure now in terms of the currency I think where that's important I mean I mean Kazakhstan has a much bigger source of US dollars than their uranium industry now 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 Kazakhstan is the world's number one producer of uranium but uranium is not the biggest industry in Kazakhstan their oil and gas industry uh, puts uranium you know pales into insignificance in the scale so you know as and their oil and gas industry is also heavily um state invested as well so if the government of kazamprom needs money it, it 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 gets it predominantly from uh the oil and gas industry uh, now so so now 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 having said that um you know the currency is extremely important uh uh when we when we analyze kazam because, um, you know, Kazadabrom's cost structure became a lot more uh, competitive in 2015. And the reason for that was the Kazakh tengi was, was sort of a managed currency and it was at the time it was trading below 200 to the US dollar uh in that like like 180 or, or or something like that and it was basically pegged the government set the exchange rate and eventually uh the you know the the economy moved against them and the the government the government ran out of US dollars and basically one day in 2015 said well forget it we're going to we're going to float the currency and the the went to like a 360 or something like that in the space of a few months, it it the, the the value of the currency versus the US dollar halved, and that in 2015 created a huge one-off reduction in um, the cash cost of production for Kazan Prom, and it kept them able and willing to uh, expand their production in 2015 and 2016 and 17 and in my view this was this lack of discipline by Kaz and Prom in, in those years was one of the reasons why the uranium market has taken a lot longer than other commodity markets typically take to correct. Now um, you know the Tengi is still Week it's still uh, like it's 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 more than 400 to the US dollar today. So um, although uh, you know that 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 one-off benefit is is a few years behind us now, inflation is very high in uh, Kazakhstan and and proms costs are rising. So. I think that, but we watched we watch the Tengi because as it weakens, we know that uh, in 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 domestic currency terms, uh, they're still making good margin. Uh, as it strengthens, if 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 it, if it goes through a significant strengthening, I, I think we'll we'll start to see Kazan and proper coming even more disciplined. Now they have been relatively disciplined in the last couple of years. I think sometimes. Also, people misunderstand some of the things that they say, like during coronavirus, uh, when they talked about uh, managing their well-field development, they didn't say they'd stop it. They just said that they would uh, curtail it somewhat. Um, so, you know, uh, I think in the last couple of years in particular, Kaz and Prom has generally done what they've said. Now... And what they are saying is they one hundred percent believe in a disciplined market strategy they have a value over volume strategy um, and you know they that they're one of the reasons why uranium in the year of coronavirus uh is still at around thirty dollars a pound spot price um uh so 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 you know I I I I think it'd be if, if Kazadabrom was genuinely indisciplined and was chasing the very last dollar, I think uh you know uranium prices would probably be in the mid twenties. Now um we we gotta keep an eye on Kazadabrom, not only obviously because it's an investment that people should consider, but um it's also something we need to you know as i said it's 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 like watching watching what saudi arabia or opec does to see what might happen to future oil prices uh kazana definitely has that position in the industry but but i love it a lot of people don't like it it's not in everyone's uranium portfolio and i do not know why because you would have had $3 $3 of performance and $1.60 of dividends by owning it in the last two years and uh, and uh, name me a major stock in the uranium industry that's done better.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Great points and a lot of stuff we can continue to discuss on them. They have, of course, a number of challenges like the industry does ahead of them, but uh, certainly they're in a good position. Let's move on here just for the sake of time, Alex, I'd, although I'd like to keep chatting. What's your thoughts on... You know, there's been some minor sector M&A, you know, kind of mm-hmm. on, the, on the lower end, in the junior space. There's been a little bit of that. And there's been some chatter about, you know, there's some new companies that have popped up and people have increased their chatter about mergers and acquisitions and consolidation. What's your thoughts on that? What do you think is likely on that front? And then also, while we're on the topic of the junior space, maybe you can share some comments uh, or maybe some companies that you like for the audience that you might have your own money into.
1: All right, so m a um the first thing i'd i'd say about m a and uranium is uh what another thing that's quite unique about uranium is we have so many uranium deposits and the world is a very long resources compared to uh current production and this is because uranium was it still is to an extent a strategic commodity so you know when nuclear weapons were discovered or, or that use for uranium a governments globally searched for uranium everywhere so 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 the governments in it, it, globally invested a lot of money in uranium exploration then of course we had the uranium power boom and and uh which led to a mass, a, a second massive uranium exploration boom so what I have to say in uranium is is Whereas for some commodities, like copper, for example, exploration is absolutely key to copper because there's just not enough copper resource globally. The world's uh, you know resource divided by production number for copper is declining, and uh, the grade is declining, and it's becoming a great concern for the copper industry. We need people to invest in find more copper. In the uranium industry, we we don't right. There's there's cop there's there's uranium there's more uranium than we can poke a stick at. And so you know, as sentiment picks up, there's a lot of assets that will appear in junior companies that um, you know are irrelevant, or they're they're in countries that are hopeless, or they have you know management teams with no experience, or you know they have no prospect. So, um, so 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 you know we'll see these assets emerge, if you like. Um, I, I do think exploration can be interesting in uranium in certain areas, but it's not it's it's not a big value driver for the industry. So uh, I don't think we focus as much on junior explorers. m and I think, will be quite important. Um, and the M&A focus, I think, should be in... North America, uh, and there's there's the, the U.S. is crying out for someone to take leadership of the uh, American uranium space. The uh, policy, you know, policies in the U.S. are becoming more supportive for domestic uranium production, but uh, that as yet nobody has stepped up to create a vehicle that is, you know, has the capital base and the the sort of appeal to capital markets to be the granddaddy of them all. And you can see that, you know, Energy Fuels has its nose in front, but then um, they also have uh, a focus on rare earths as well. Uh, there've been some people acquiring uh, sort of conventional assets in the US and Uh, whereas I think the game would probably be a bit more focused on ISR in the US. So, you know, so I'm looking for some of these companies to consolidate here. I'm talking about companies like UEC, UR Energy, uh, Uranium, Encore, which is uh, Bill Sheriff's company, which has uh, come up and obviously been acquiring some some assets and uh you know your bill has a has a history as well so you know frankly three of those four companies should be one company you know in a way the market's crying out for this another logical form of m a is probably going to happen in canada cameco is actually you know uh this this whole sort of lost decade since fukushima uh Cameco has been burning through its resources and it's starting to look like it's got a bit of a short mine life you know then you've got uh fission and next gen with deposits that look like they show great economics and denison as well um with, with, with good assets uh looking like uh they have some prospectivity i i i i think you know, one or two of these should potentially merge as well. the The issue you have a little bit is relative valuation. A a a, a lot of people tell me that they own Next Gen because Cameco is going to buy Next Gen, and I look at I look at these two and I say, well, you know, Cameco is not going to spend. Fifty percent of its, you know, or forty percent of its market value. Once you think about paying a premium for next gen, for uh, earnings, sort of seven or eight years down the track, right? It, it's just not going to do that. Next gen's too expensive uh, for Cameco to buy them. And so, 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 so you got this in that Canadian space. Industrial logic tells you that, you know, Cameco's management. Should be the logical people to develop next gen's assets, but or fissions for that matter. But uh, there's some other things going on in evaluation sense. But you know, the, the, these uh, this is a long term game, but but definitely there's some some logic to some pairing pairing up there. Um, so I, I think we need a US champion and we need you know some of these undeveloped deposits in Canada would logically fit if if, if Camco wants to. Wants to continue to be a major player in the industry, then I, then I suspect they they need to, to to fit in now. Consolidation elsewhere, it's really not necessary or interesting. Um, you know, are, are some people going to get together in Niger? I don't know, but you know, in a way, who who really cares about Niger? I mean, it's a difficult place to go to. Uh, Malawi, these kind of places, I don't know. I think I, I think I think the M and A you know the M and A scene is is going to be a U.S. story, and, and and I'm really hopeful that in the next cycle there's a U.S. major that emerges off the back of some domestic production leverage, but has the potential to become a you know an an international company as well, an, an international player.
0: Alex, and how do you see it coming together as far as timing? Do you see some of this happening early on? You know, look, you and I both know that companies that, that are more responsible and that have the capability from a cash perspective to make these acquisitions early in a bear market or, you know, in an early stage bull market like we've seen in the gold sector and also the copper sector where assets have been acquired very cheaply during bad times, obviously makes more sense from a value standpoint than trying to do acquisitions mm-hmm. mid-late cycle but talk about just for a moment, when do you see them happening? And then also, obviously in the meantime, we know some of these more bigger popular companies will continue to burn through capital. In Canada, Fission and NextGen will continue to burn through capital substantially as things Mm. progress here, because they probably won't do anything. And if they do anything, it's gonna take them, like you said, seven, eight years, and Mm. that's probably being a little bit optimistic, unless of course the market takes off and uranium price is so high that everybody's on board with fast development. But talk about the Namibia aspect. You know, you mentioned Najir, but talk about Namibia yes. and maybe how companies that are looking at Australia and Africa or companies that are looking at Namibia and, and Australia, how that might also play a role in potential M&A.
1: Yeah, in Namibia, you've got Paladin, Deep Yellow, Bannerman, really that, those those three, and then, and then you've got the Chinese-owned uh, mines, Husab, and uh, and and the former Rio Tinto mine Rossing, I I, I think that the Chinese are generally in a in a pretty reasonable resource position there, um, and they're also the the assets that they own in Namibia are difficult assets, so they they're you know they're, they're busy scratching their head with those those two assets. I think um, you know, at some point I can see Paladin probably. You know, wanting to acquire more resources in Namibia, but that has to be quite some time off. It it has to be in a time where, you know, it's achieved its advancement in terms of restarting Langer Heinrich and and um, optimizing Langer Heinrich first. I think I think there's some there's some great initiatives that could be introduced there that can optimize uh, in a processing sense Langer Heinrich, and once you do that, you Open the door to be able to transport ores from deposits nearby, and or you know process some lower grade ores. So, so I, I, but but I think that's that kind of consolidation is years away. Yeah, I I don't I don't see, and and you know two big issues with near term consolidation. Number one is when you're an executive of, of these companies, and everybody's worried about you know the fact that your commodity price is still low your investors are telling you not to do anything they're telling you, oh don't don't spend money uh you know oh, please you know please don't do anything that, that 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 you know that that might cost money or or look interesting and you know uh so so now uranium prices obviously come up off its off its lows but i don't believe that the sector in general is yet past the survival mode mentality, right? Uh, can Mark Chalmers go out and buy two or three of these, uh, you know, uh, uh, junior uranium companies in the U.S.? I don't think so. I, 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 not right now. I think I think I think his shareholders are still telling him, you know, listen, we're we're very worried about what happens if uranium price goes goes back to the early twenties and blah, blah blah, and whether or not you you know uh these companies need capital or whatnot so so i don't like um you know the 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 first stage uh of an emerging bull market usually comes with new juniors emerging in that commodity we're starting to see that now with some of the with encore for example as a new company or on the asx with something like lotus um or superior lake uh becoming a uranium company uh the 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 stage at which we start to see the M&A action take take place will be when management teams have more confidence. So the first thing is this issue of confidence in the management team. The second thing is is the personality thing. I could tell you like the uranium industry is smaller than other mineral you know commodity sub-segments and it's more uh, you know people know each other better which can be a good thing sometimes but it can also be a Worst thing and and because uranium has had many many years in in the last few decades of doldrums you know it, it hasn't brought in a lot of new blood into the industry and so you've got a lot of people that know each other very well and for one reason or another that that probably precludes m a in in some senses so some of these people firstly they need more confidence and secondly you know that they all need to sort of put their uh, Put their grievances aside and 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 get together. But it, you know, um, the next stage of a bull market will answer those questions because some of these deals will become more compelling. They're not, they're not they're not as compelling right now because they're only compelling when you can act on the acquisitions. It doesn't matter how cheap something gets if you're warehousing that acquisition and you have no idea when you're going to develop that property or when the synergy is going to be achieved. It's not an interesting thing to do. If you if you start to look at acquisitions, you say, well, you know, I, I can have that cooking in four or five years' time as another source of production or three years' time or whatnot, that becomes a lot more compelling. And we need the next stage of uranium price increase to get there.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think that there is some friction there with some of the existing management teams and the unwillingness to work together and to come together and get in the same bed. And then I think you're also right on that front. I think there's a capital, bit of a capital problem and also a bit of a confidence problem. So I think it is very uh, walking thin ice, I suppose. What about just briefly, just uh, any companies that you'd like to share that you like or that you personally own?
1: Okay, so I PA, outside of the fund, I own, you know, I've got some shares in Kazan and Prom, I should say, for, for the reasons that I set out previously. I like. Paladin as a very leveraged play to uranium upside. Now, Paladin, though, is a little bit more of a timely bet, right? Because Paladin has a, its it, its debt is due in March of 2023. And unless uranium prices really moved on, that is going to become a risk for Paladin. So if, if you think you know, Uranium price is going to go to, you've got to kind of really start moving here in 2021, then there's very few companies are going to offer you the same kind of upside in terms of share price performance, but also liquidity be able to trade in and trade out as Paladin. But um, if it doesn't happen in 2021, in 2022, people are going to suddenly start to be looking at saying, listen, there's a bond due in March, 2023, and this is a problem, okay? so. Paladin is a great investment if if you can really put your finger on when you think and be confident about timing. Um, as many people know, uh, I'm a shareholder of Azagi Uranium, uh, probably one of the biggest, if not still the biggest shareholder of that company. I uh, was a co-founder of that company. That's a that's one of the companies that might participate in US consolidation, or it's got you know it's got a great project. It's a smaller size company in terms of resources, um, but it's uh, the economics of its flagship Dewey Burdock uh, project are exceptionally good. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it can get developed at relatively low uranium prices, uh, albeit it's been going through the permitting process for quite some time, but, but it feels like this is coming to a, to a close here. And, and, and by the way, Blake, the guy, the guy running it, Blake Steele, is a relatively young guy. He's got no skeletons in the uranium closet, if you like, uh, with with all these other personalities. So I, I think, in terms of somebody who's really open to being involved in consolid- consolidation, I think Blake is is a guy that recognises value and 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 uh, you know will participate in that. So so you know they're uh, they're, they're they're sort of the three. I quite like energy fuels because it's it's relatively liquid and it's well funded I, I think that by you know i think in a way they've done the right thing by expanding a bit their focus into rare earths which is is is, is bringing capital in and and opportunities to make money for them but once uranium really moves, the uranium business will still dwarf anything they're doing at the moment in rare earth. So it's still a uranium exposure when things really get moving. Um, and, you know, in the last uranium boom, Energy Fuels was one of the most liquid companies. And, you know, being listed in the US really helps in that regard as well. So, you know, and, and Energy Fuels, it, you know, it's probably in the right position to to, to be the one that that drives the consolidation in the U.S. over time. So uh, those are those are names I like. But you know, I mean, I mean, you can ask me about just about any uranium company out there. I mean, we've 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 looked at them all. So you know.
0: <laughs> well, Alex, uh, what would you say just to folks that are considering the uranium fund at Eight Stone on Clanner? Uh, what would you say to them about uh, consideration of that fund, and you know, who should they reach out to as far as if they're interested?
1: Well, I think at the start of the call you mentioned the website. Um and the, the chief investment officer is a gentleman by the name of Sylvain Bald. He's uh he's based in Singapore and um, you know, they can they can um on the website you can go you can go onto the website and uh and and uh email eight stone and uh, that email will find find its way to Sylvain, and uh, you know we 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 can e- engage with interested parties. The fund you have to be a, a sort of a qualified buyer, if you like. So it's 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 not a fund that's completely open to retail, but it but but I think um I don't think it's super hard to qualify either. But Eight Stone would have to go th- through that process and have a discussion with someone interested to invest, and in that and in that process you can find out more about the fund, what we do. Uh, it's structured in a way that our fees are also very low. By the way, we 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 uh, we structure it as as what's called an actively managed certificate, which is a relatively low fee structure. It's not like a hedge fund style fee structure. So, um, it's it's uh, I think it's an interesting way to get some portfolio uranium exposure. Uh, that is managed by an experienced investment management company with all the proper risk management techniques. And then, uh, and then, you know, they they take advice from me on portfolio construction and industry issues.
0: And for anyone who wants to reach out to you, Alex, uh, any contact information for them?
1: Yeah. Uh, you can email me on Alex at azagaresources.com and that's a-z-a-r-g-a resources.com.
0: Well that sounds good Alex. Well I really appreciate it. We covered a lot of ground here. Appreciate the uh, discussion on the uranium front and everything else. Really appreciate you coming back and taking the time and hope you're staying well out there and hopefully one of these days you can get back to Australia.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you having me on, Andrew. You're doing great work to to help people understand a lot more about these uh, industries and investment opportunities. So, uh, you know, anytime, I, I enjoy coming on. Thanks.